Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Mike, co-host of Realistic Sustainability, the podcast, which you probably already know, but I'm also the author of A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life. That was the book that led to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and, well, even this show. It offers tips on promoting your positive footprint while decreasing your carbon footprint. So if you want to read what started all of this, get A Beginner's Guide to Greening Your Life, available on Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or just visit greeningyourlife.org for more information. Thank you for joining the sustainable movement and promoting a greener future. Hi, and welcome back to Realistic Sustainability. I'm Mike, and I'm here with Nick. Good morning. How are you? I know you said morning. This is weird. Isn't it? We usually record at night. Today, we're recording in the morning, so if it sounds different, it's because we're different. 12 hours ahead of our habitual meeting time. It I is. I personally think it's going to be awesome. <laughs> well, we're, we're probably going to be more alert, less yawning. That would be the idea. That's where the awesome comes from. <laughs> Usually when we talk, I'm exhausted. Now I got some energy. So that was you without energy. Generally. So you've been busy with projects. That's why you're so darn tired all the time. How's your projects coming along? They're going well. I will say that when it comes to starting a company, there's a lot more legal stuff that you have to do than I ever really considered. And so I feel like every single day I'm getting a notification or a letter in the mail saying I've got to apply for this or I got to pay for that. Or the moment I registered with the state of Michigan, I got a notice in the mail. It was like two days later saying that I've got to buy this special poster. So it informs my employees of their rights, even if I am the only employee and the business is out of my house. So it's just a lot of a lot of stuff. But it's good. They're coming along real nice. I have a second tasting for catering on the 17th. We did one back in February, and it went over like gangbusters. And there was a lot of people, though, that couldn't come to it. And so we're doing a second one to make the ladies happy and the gentlemen happy, and hopefully they book with us. Shoot, man. I don't think I've ever seen anybody start a business with as much business as you're getting right off the bat. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, the way I am trying to process it is that I am making the best out of an absolute worst situation. I'm not ignorant to the fact that because of you know the nation coming out of COVID, there was a lot of displaced brides and couples and different people that had booked events and venues for things that canceled. And a lot of places booked you know weddings two, three years out because they didn't know what the future was going to hold. So they just canceled a lot of stuff. And it it's terrible and it was tragic. But for someone starting a business, it left me a lot of pieces to start to pick up. I just had to make sure to pay attention to where to find them. Yeah. And hopefully everything goes nice and smooth. And it's the, the new beginning you were looking for. As far as work goes, it's kind of business same as usual. I've been doing this for three years. I'm just doing it for myself now. I'm excited because I get to offer a better product for a far more fair price. At the place I've worked prior, we charged way too much, for something that really wasn't that great quality-wise. So I'm, I'm really excited to step forward and do a little better. So in this week's show, it's a little bit different than normal because a lot of times I'm throwing topics at you that you're kind of learning on the fly. 
this week we're going to talk about ocean plastic, which you have been kind of brushing up on a little bit before we picked the topic. Yeah, so you're right. And I do want to, before you know, we really get into it, I do want to kind of explain that when it comes to ocean plastic, my general knowledge on it, which I assume was pretty straight across the board with the average persons, you know, you, you see the infomercials and you see the things online and you know kind of that there's there's things in the water. And um, so do you remember being younger and people like there was this phase where the country went through where they're like, Oh, you gotta, you gotta snip the plastic rings on your pop and your beer cans. That way the fish don't get caught in them and animals don't get caught in them. And like everyone just did that and they told each other to do it. And it was like this big movement, but no one, literally no one stopped it, but it's still going in the ocean. Why don't we just not throw them there? <laughs> There's very little root cause analysis when it comes to these things. And I think, I think some of the shows that you've been watching and some of the documentaries are showing you how come they were guided in that direction. Yeah, like literally what that was, I'd be uh, miscategorizing this, but I would say that that was my first experience with like real greenwashing. Literally taking something terrible and making people feel good about it. Yeah, Like, it, oh, yeah, we're helping the environment. It's okay to still buy your beer with these rings as long as you snip them instead of we'll just put them in a paper box. Yeah. And and like, it wasn't even the snipping. It was, it's still like we, as part of the spiel of of why it's important to cut them, it was literally said, oh, fish should get caught in them. Like they're just going to live harmoniously in the water with the lives, like with the animals. It's just, and I never, I I never even thought about that. I was watching a documentary, which, you know, because I talked to you about it and that occurred, that's not part of the documentary, but that occurred to me. I was like, wow, like that was I remember seeing that in school and on on little infomercials and and it's just it was very prevalent to our day-to-day life for a little bit and at no point someone went well why could we just not throw them away right. why don't we just not use them which at the University of Michigan was what Dr. Kaufman did to me all the time because my brain goes into how do I engineer a solution mm-hmm. and he constantly hit me with a hammer of stop it from getting there and you don't have to engineer a solution constantly and that's what you're talking about is this if we don't have it to go into the ocean then we don't have to snip it or worry about it yeah you're treating at that point instead of treating the symptoms you're treating the cause right and in today's world we we're in a society where there's too many different things in life and not just in in sustainability, but in general, where people treat symptoms, they don't treat the cause. Uh, It's the same kind of people. Have you ever seen someone that uh, instead of like pulling a a plant out by the roots, they just cut pieces off and try to kill it? Right. Well, or you go to to pull a weed and it snaps off because they didn't, they didn't get the root system out and they do it time and time and time again. I understand that. We, yeah, but that's exactly what it is. And it's, and I figured me using the gardening analogy would, would connect near and dear to your heart. Oh, absolutely. So I did watch the documentary myself because it's okay. the first time you've ever recommended me a environmental slash sustainability thing to watch. It got me on to some other ones and I just kind of daisy chained through way too many. And I understand that. one thing that I realized is that I had a misconception when I did the research for the book. I learned something later. I talk about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Mm-hmm. In, in a beginner's guide to greening your life, because I think in order to do better at home, you have to understand the history, understand the verbiage, understand why. And I imagine this patch of garbage larger than Texas, almost like an island. 
that isn't what it is. It was pretty eye-opening to me to see that it was primarily microplastics and fishing nets. And matter, I have stats on it, but the whole uh, the whole concept here is that even though I wrote a book and I did research on it, and the verbiage is right on the research and it's sourced, I still in my head saw it as something completely different. And what it is today is much more dangerous than what I assumed it was. A pile of garbage is easy to find. And with a global effort, easy to clean up. What is there is not. No, it's not. So that was in that documentary when they talk about the the Pacific Garbage Patch. That was the the first part of the documentary. I watched it and I watched it. I I didn't do anything else. I just actually watched it and engaged with it. And that was the first part that kind of made me take a step back because we've talked about microplastics and stuff like that a lot. Like we we we've, that's been brought up, and I know that at this point they're present in all in all the oceans, and that generally like the the statistical chance that you would find a a piece of fish or a lobster or any type of living creature in the ocean that doesn't have microplastics somewhere in the system is is actually getting very very low because it's so prevalent in 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 our oceans. But that the fishing thing hit me way more than I expected it to. And I think the reason is, is that years ago when I was just a little guy, one of the very first things I ever wanted to be, you know, as a kid, you grow up and you're like, I want to be this. Well, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I've always been obsessed with water and I've always loved fish and sharks and that kind of stuff. And I just think they're super interesting and I enjoy watching them. So the notion of just a bunch of floating death traps in the water is just horrifying to me. Like the microplastics are bad enough, but to realize that the food source for a huge portion of the planet is essentially being poisoned every day and getting worse. And the stocks aren't coming back. The fish aren't able to reproduce and spawn and and live healthy lives. It's just, it's disgusting. It's heartbreaking. And it was just the start of the things that bothered me in the documentary. (laughs) Well, so the first thing that I wrote down just for numbers, because you know me, I want to talk some stats in it too. Sounds global good. global plastic production. We produce 380 million tons of plastic yearly. And I mean that globally. Globally, okay. Globally. Half of it is single use. That doesn't surprise me. 3% of that ends up in the ocean, roughly. It, it, it's only 3%? Well, that's only 8 million tons. Well, no, I, I understand that. But the reason I ask is because I didn't look that statistic up. I've got some other numbers, but I didn't look that up. But the one thing that I was surprised about when I started looking up microplastics, I had a misconception. I thought microplastics were just smaller pieces of other things that had broken down or maybe had been like re- not recycled, but you know they sent through like a shredder and there's tiny pieces in, in the ocean. But there's a lot more than that. You know, we use microplastics on like a on literally like a microscopic level in almost all of our consumer goods, our, our soaps and our, our shampoos and our conditioners, our shaving creams. You know, all this stuff goes down the drain and then a lot of it doesn't always go to water treatment plants. A lot of it just goes to the ocean. And it's absolutely it's absolutely disgusting. And but also I never thought about that. I never had any idea. And I assume that the microplastics are in there as binders and they're probably in there to, you know, help the, the soap do its job to clean you. But all that stuff just goes to the ocean. While things may be water soluble, it doesn't mean they disappear and go away. And also the viscosity of ocean water is very different than fresh water. So it, it it's very out of sight, out of mind. But once it's in your mind, it makes you take a step back. And it's it's very bothersome. Okay, so in the book, I talk about microbeads, which are banned. And even in the United States, where we don't hold as much value in environmental health, mm-hmm. uh, microbeads are banned. This was a product kind of like the K-cup. We're going to build this cup so you don't waste as much coffee. You'll 
you'll be you'll make it one cup at a time until yeah. we until we realize there's a mountain of K cups that are going to outlive us by 400 plus years. Yeah, micro beads was a way to use plastic in a second way. So instead of using pumice and soaps so that you exfoliate your face, they would use small chunks of plastic. And then they found out that yes, when we wash it down the sink. It finds its way into water sources, which isn't that that is not a wow factor for me. I know when it rains that the the sewer and the septic are the same pipe. That water still goes to the treatment plant. And if you have way too much rain, there's overflows. Those overflows head off to your rivers, your rivers, your streams, your creeks, your lakes. It doesn't take a whole heck of a lot to send things you don't want into nature off into nature. It just takes a nice little rain, a rainstorm. Yep. So I wasn't shocked by microbeads being in the system. But that's when they started to realize that mm, we've got a problem. But it, it pushed from there. When you start getting 8 million tons of plastic per year into the ocean, you have to start looking at why, how, what happens to that plastic. Well, year over year, it bumps, it breaks, it starts to change how rigid it is, and it breaks into smaller and smaller pieces. That's a garbage truck of plastics dumped into our oceans every minute. Yeah, absolutely. And over time, because another thing I found out was when it comes to plastics, you had asked me a while back about, are we ramping up plastics? Is it way more than it used to be? We have produced as much plastic in the last 10 years that we have all of human civilization. I'm not surprised. So it's not just ramping up, it's ramping up exponentially. That plastic gets into the system and continues to break down more and more and more until it is essentially microplastics again. You know, I on one hand, we want things to biodegrade. We want things to go back to the way they originally were on this planet, but not at the cost of the health of an entire ecosystem or a food source. I mean, generally speaking, when you think about things biodegrading, when you say that, everyone always associates it with landfills and in the dirt. And that's a whole different can of worms that, than the ocean because, and I literally mean that because the dirt is the dirt and the things that live in the dirt are not as in danger as a whole, as the the ocean is. Now, I kind of equate it to this, like fish swimming in their natural habitat, if they, they, they swim into, you know, the great garbage patch and they get caught in the net, that'd be like walking over to your neighbor's house and just falling in a hole you didn't know was there. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not fair to destroy an entire part of the world that it's, it, yes, it's on our planet, but it, it's completely alien to us. Like there's so much about it we don't understand and we'll never have the chance to understand it because by the time we take it seriously, it's not going to be nothing left to understand, but a mess. Right. Just a few stats that I didn't realize that I, I picked up from those shows and then went back and verified that mm-hmm. 50, 52% of the plastic that is sitting out in the, in the Pacific garbage patch is just fishing nets. Yeah, they it got a hole in it, and instead of taking it back to be repaired or instead of fixing it, they just throw it overboard, which means that you have this floating net to wherever it ends up, which means it can catch anything it wants on the way. But 52% yeah. of a garbage patch the size of Texas at its smallest point is nets, which means that there's there's a hazard right then and there for marine life. As it sits right now, the garbage patch is 1.6 million square kilometers. Yeah, which 52% of the plastics is nets, which, again, are dangerous for all sea life. There's 47%, which is us, the hard plastics, water bottles, clamshell containers for fast foods, that kind of stuff. The hardened plastics, toys, yeah, the toys that kids get, the dollar store stuff. Mm -hmm. And then 
from there, you still have about a half percent of like pre-production pellets. So that means that a company was recycling plastic. And when their tanker or ship or during transit, you know, a ship sank or something fell overboard. But pre-production pellets is about a half percent, which means raw material plastic is in the ocean, which is just about as bad as microplastics. Oh, it's definitely as bad. And then another half percent of foam, foam plastics, which are toxic. That is what's floating around in the ocean out there. If you go out there in a boat, you don't see a thing. That's the crazy part is you sit out there in that patch. I assume it looks like a dumpster, but it doesn't. It looks like an ocean. It's only when you start looking down into the water do you start seeing, oh, there's a bottle. Oh, there's a plastic bag. Not, it doesn't stick out and smack us in the face like you expect it would, which is probably why it doesn't get the attention it should. Well, that kind of goes into one of those things where it doesn't stick out and smack you in the face like you expect it would. But truth be told, I also think it's because people aren't really thinking. And I, that, I'm not trying to sound rude, but hear me out on this. Under the assumption in a make-believe world that the ocean is a giant body of water that does not move, that there is literally zero movement, a lot of it would float to the top and wouldn't move. But we're talking about a massive force that is that's influenced by the, the, the tides and currents and animals and boats and ships, and it's something is always moving it. So these, these plastics and like nets, for instance, are designed to – they have just enough buoyancy where they float in the water. They're not going to sink all the way down, but they're not going to come to the top. So they're going to be under the surface, and they're going to be there, though. If you have a big enough boat, you'd probably run into the nets. But I'm talking a really large ship. Right. Well, and I know that I've recently said we have a lot of people from a lot of different countries listening to this show. And one of the things I found out is we are the bad guys. The United States accounts for most of plastics on this planet. And and it doesn't mean we produce the most. We produce or account for the second largest amount. We are the reason why China produces the most. So I agree with that. You're right. My question, though, is if, if, for instance, you're talking about the fishing nets and stuff like that, which at at this point, I'm circling around the Great Garbage Patch again. I know this doesn't speak for the whole ocean, but those are not, for the most part, U.S. Those are other countries that have huge commercial fishing organizations and, and processes and stuff like that. Now, the other stuff, the high density polyethylene and the low density polyethylene, the plastic bags and the forks and the knives and the spoons and the straws, all that stuff. Yeah, we either produce it or we waste it. We are we are not in any way, shape or form the biggest population on the planet, but we are a big consumer and we are an even bigger exporter and producer in that regard. Well, and it's, I think the stat I have written down here is Americans throw away 231 pounds of plastic waste each per year. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that's actually higher. That's a lot of plastic per person. And there's a lot of people in the United States. That's a lot of plastic. Even if just 3% of it's going to the ocean, that's a lot. So there's also another reason why Americans create waste that ends up in the ocean. It used to be that we sent almost all of our waste to China. And through political conflicts and fights and things, China stopped China stopped receiving all of our plastic waste, mm-hmm. which we have a ton of. And we couldn't just find a spot for it. So we started to ship it to places like Malaysia or Indonesia. Poorer countries would take our waste. Well, they don't have an ability to process it in any way, shape, or form. 
they pick through it, pick what's usable, and the rest just sits on the ground. It's quite literally creating trash islands that slowly wash into the ocean. Large amounts of our plastics are coming from the other hemisphere. And it's just because we're to to our nation is pretending like they're a trash can. It's it's quote unquote away. My assumption is that in those those other countries, we probably pay them to do it. It's probably a source of income for the country. And so that's why it never really has been addressed as a problem from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speculating that being that we live in Michigan and a huge part of our state's income is processing garbage it gets from Canada. So I understand that on a bigger scale, but it doesn't surprise me that we do it too. It What bothers me though is that there isn't a, there's no good way to, to, to dispose of this stuff. I mean, the stuff that can be recycled, great, reused, awesome. But a lot of it, once it's made, it's made. And the only way to really destroy it is fire. And that just puts it back into the air. So there's no like ace in the hole for for getting rid of it and and responsibly disposing of it that I'm aware of. Granted, you're the expert and I'm just a guy who got really angry after watching a couple documentaries. So, <laughs> well, between <laughs> 9 and 12% of plastics are recycled. It's not that they can't be recycled, is that there's no market for the recycled product. It is not like aluminum where it's cheaper to use recycled aluminum than to smelt bauxite and create aluminum. With plastics, we're already creating gasoline. There's already oil out there. This is kind of a waste product, if you will, from the oil industry. They can make it as cheap as they want it because if not, they have to pay to dispose. So plastic is very cheap from virgin material. It is very, mm-hmm. and it's a very energy intense process to recycle. So right now, there's just no market unless you do a carbon tax or something to create a higher cost on raw material recycling just doesn't make any economic sense. And in in the world we live in, it has Mm -hmm. to make economic sense for anybody to do it. So right now, between 9 and 12% of all plastics are recycled or downcycled. Remember, most plastics are downcycled. Just because it's a water bottle doesn't mean it gets to be a water bottle again. It usually gets to be like indoor-outdoor carpet or fleece. Yeah, the reason that happens, though, is that plastic isn't like something that you can just reshape and reuse in most situations as to reheat it. When you reheat it, it loses a lot of the gas it took to make it in the first place. So as it downcycles, it gets smaller and denser. And one of the plastics, like as a kid, I had these little Godzilla toys and I used to try to melt them together to make a bigger one. And the the plastic used for toys is is especially bad in that regard because as soon as it gets hot enough hits that melting point it literally dissolves into nothing like it's gone so there's a lot of stuff that's like that and so to recycle and reuse it is great but to to process it like that is completely counterproductive in the sense like i said it, it's just dissolving into the air evaporating into the air and you don't need to breathe that into your lungs any more than a fish needs to swim into a net Well, and it's hard to live a life with no plastic. It's very challenging. Every time I go to a store and I'm looking at things, I'm constantly looking at the packaging. I'm trying to minimize that plastic. Can I reuse this? We just recently got cupcakes that came in a plastic clamshell that's now a six-plant seed starter greenhouse. I'm trying to find as many ways to reuse things as possible because the only way we curb plastic production is to reduce consumption. If we stop buying it, they'll stop making it. And that's a hard thing to do. It's almost it's almost addictive in some sense, but it's primarily because there is there is very few options against plastic. 
Well, yeah, especially if you don't want to pay more money. That's one of the biggest things is that it's so cheap to produce, and it really is in terms of the overall cost that it make from a financial sense, it makes sense why everything is done in plastic. But when you look at the long-term cost you're going to have to pay, it's it's terrible. Like I ordered, I ordered some ladyfinger cookies, which are a hard Italian cookie. Uh, well, the ones I ordered are hard variety, but I, I want to make tiramisu soon, so so I ordered some of those, and they came wrapped in it they come in a plastic tray wrapped in a plastic wrapper packed with plastic foam peanuts and a box shipped from italy like that's a whole lot of packaging for a couple of pounds of cookies it's a whole lot of energy in general my god yes for a couple of cookies the and that's you know my brain will always go to energy but it's amazing how challenging it is to avoid plastic because even when I see stats, I start getting angry. I look at a stat that says a million marine animals are killed by plastic pollution every year. Or they show you the video of the crab that's got PVC elbow as its shell and how, you know, the ocean life doesn't know the difference. The fact that people don't understand bioaccumulation. So if if the plankton eat the tiny, tiny pieces of plastic and the fish eat the plankton and so on, and that continues on, the bigger fish eats the smaller fish and we eat the bigger fish. It's it's calculated that we're eating a credit card worth of plastic a year or 40 pounds in a lifetime at this point. I don't doubt it. And that's just the stuff out of like the, the, the marine life. And they're right. The, the the ocean life, like most animals, don't really understand some things if they're always around it. But it, they're not meant to understand. They're not they're not sentient beings. It's not a fish's responsibility not to swim into the net. It's our responsibility not to screw up their home. It's not as much plastic as in the ocean and as much bad that, that we're dumping into the ocean. It's not even held to just ocean creatures. Have you seen any of the pictures or videos as they dissect dead birds that are sitting on the beach and, to, and, and open up their stomachs? Well, I mean, I haven't, but that's common sense. So most birds, not all, but most birds that live near a body of water, guess what? Eat fish. They eat things they see floating in the water. Look at a seagull. I'm going to use a seagull as a great example. A seagull will swallow anything brightly colored, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Seagulls are common near water. That's where they get most of their food. I call them sky rats because they eat anything. Seagulls are a great example. And lots of species of birds, generally seagulls, but other ones as well, tend to feed primarily on small species of fish that eat algaes and eat planktons near the top of the water. So when those schools of fish come up and they're eating, the birds are diving into eating them. Well, if the fish is already eating plastic and the bird eats the fish, it's the same thing you just explained with us and fish, but with birds. It's not any different. Well, and that's bioaccumulation. When If you Google plastic in the stomach of bird, the photos are disturbing. We're talking between 20 and 40 pieces of plastic, which means that when they could get food, they weren't getting the nutrients that there's, I've seen cigarette lighters that seagulls have swallowed. There's the rings on your soda, those plastic rings after you open it from the cap, there's Mm -hmm. all these, and then random chunks of plastic and all these things. It just starts to fill their stomach. So when they do actually get a fish, Mm-hmm. They they can eat it, but they're not getting the nutrients. They start getting blockages, and then they die. You know, and you look over at a bird that's died on the on the beach, and it's all bloated. And you you open that bird up, and it's filled with plastic. Yeah, I don't doubt that. And it so we're we're kind of spoiled in the sense that um we live near we live in Michigan, so we were surrounded by large bodies of fresh water, and. We get to see a lot of different types of marine life. I call it marine life, but sea life, water, aquatic animals, plants, blah, blah, blah. But the ocean, 
in my head, was this insurmountable superpower of life teeming with different species and schools of things. And that it was like the, the, the phrase for Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, life finds a way or life will find a way. I love I always thought the ocean was was like a deity in that regard. Like it just was it was insurmountable, but it's not insurmountable. We are destroying it at record paces. Well, we're destroying it from two different angles. We're first polluting it. And second, we're pulling every fish we can find out of it. Even if we're oh. not using the fish, if we're not, if, if there's no productive reason, you know, from, from by fishing, yeah, you're looking for tuna, but you end up with a bunch of sharks. They just throw, you know, they're, they're dead in the nets. They just throw them back in the ocean. We're not even using the pieces when we make our mistakes. So I'm going to, I don't really want to talk about this part any longer than we have to, because I'm going to get really angry really fast. I'm going to say this. I, I think that commercial fishing should be abolished. I don't think it should be there. I don't think we need it in the world. I think it's terrible. I think fishing should be locally. I think that if you want good food, you have to go where the food is. I don't think that me as a chef in Michigan should be able to get a piece of barramundi. I don't think it should happen. The more I learn about the commercial food industry and the more I learn about these different types of businesses, the more I'm realizing that I don't really want a part of some of these products anymore. There's a difference between fishing and dragging a three football field size net behind a behind a boat trolling. Oh, you mean oh, you mean a trolling? Oh, now okay, let's talk about trolling. So not only is it dragging and catching everything in its way, it's also destroying every micro ecosystem on the ground, the bottom, the sea floor as it drags over all the coral, all the shellfish, all of it dead or at least severely damaged. Right. It, it disturbs the ecosystem completely. I think we know a lot more than we used to know just from digging into this. Uh, it started with plastics. It moved to fishing. And next thing you know, we've got a whole new respect for our ocean and a disrespect for how we're treating it. The UN believes that they, by 2050, there will be more pieces of plastic in the ocean than fish. They're probably not wrong. I had watched something on regenerative farming that the UN believes that we have 60 harvests left. Based on how we fish, we have less than 60 fishing years left. I don't doubt it. And while we're talking about fish, I want to touch on fish farming. I want to touch on the, the misconception and the greenwashing notion that fish farms are better because they're not. And the notion of a fish farm sounds like it's a better concept than fishing and destroying ecosystems. And I'm sure that there may be some in the world that probably could be. But from the information that I watched in the documentary and what I've been finding out since then is that if you watch a documentary, so you know that like in, in Scotland, which is famous for its its salmon, and it is, Scottish salmon is absolutely delicious in terms of the meat texture and quality. But they waste 50% of what is produced either through sickness or they just don't sell it or whatever whatever shortcoming that piece of fish has. When it's pulled out of the water, still alive in most cases, it's wasted. 50%. That they In the documentary, they said that the fish farms alone in Scotland produce more feces and waste than the entire population of humans on that island. Mm-hmm. Um, gross. But also, that, that's... <laughs> in the ocean. That's just... It's it's in the ocean and it's horrible. And these aren't just these aren't just plants that die every season. They're living creatures that we're it's like our cows here. We're we're producing and growing and breeding so many and producing a problem. Is it better to to raise salmon than fish for salmon? Probably to some degree, but just because something is a little better doesn't mean it's good enough to where I think it's a good option. And 
I think that sometimes to do the right thing, you have to do something that isn't necessarily good feeling to do. And I think that in this case, doing the right thing in the big picture long haul would be to severely restructure and maybe even heavily regulate these types of industries because they're destroying all different things. And I, I don't, I had a statistic, I lost it. I, I don't know where it went, but there's about the amount of species that, that get put into the endangered, like, you know, category every year from these kinds of things, like different species of fish and nothing big and flashy, nothing you'd recognize, nothing that, that has had a, a Pixar movie made about it that becomes a, you know, a child stuffed animal. But just because it's not cute and cuddly doesn't mean it's not important to the ecosystem. It's hard to get regulation across. It's hard to regulate multi-billion dollar companies globally mm-hmm. with different rules in different countries for every country that says we won't there's another country that says we will and they pick up the slack on damage but if we were more selective in our foods and if we ate mm-hmm. less if we were if, if we ate meat we ate four ounces of meat with a, with our meal instead of a 16 ounce steak a 20 ounce steak if you know or a 20 ounce salmon shank you know <laughs> those huge steaks of salmon because we also waste 40 percent of our food if we quit yeah. wasting 40% of all produced food and we were more selective in what we ate and, and we ate less of the meats, that in itself forces them to not fish at that scale. Because if they can't sell it, they're not going to go get it. I I almost completely agree with you. Um, the difference is, is that, like you mentioned, tuna earlier, majority of tuna is canned. So that will, they're going to do it regardless. They're going to wipe that that species of fish off the face of the planet. Because it gets put in a can and shoved on a shelf. As long as it's um, very expensive and they, they get a large price for it. But if we consume less from economics, the demand drops. And when demand drops, the price drops. It's just how that works. If we eat less of it, then the demand overall is much smaller. And, and the, the, the carrot to go damage something for the money goes away. I... I hope you're right, because I think the first step in, in educating the, the population on, on food is just teaching them where it comes from and how you get it. Not not telling you necessarily what it's doing to the environment. And I do believe this, that if someone loves beef, they should take it. They should spend a couple of days at, at a cow farm and then they should spend a couple of days at a, at a slaughterhouse and then a processing plant. They should know where their food comes from. And I don't mean a locally, I mean a commercial, a commercially, like the stuff you're buying at the grocery store, you should see where that comes from. The 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 fish, for me, like I knew a lot of the stuff I seen in the documentary, but I never had it brought so so open into my eyes to the degree of what it was. So for me, I never looked at fish like that. I never looked at the oceans like that. Now that I have, it's completely changed the way I think about things. Just like owning chickens has changed the way I think about eggs and meat. It's uh, I think that knowing where your food comes from, like having an intimate knowledge, a personal knowledge over it and a detailed knowledge will greatly help you influence your purchasing and and and, and your eating, your eating habits. I, I don't, I'm never going to be the person who condone not eating meat. I mean, look what I do for a living. But I do think that you shouldn't just take for granted that you can go into the grocery store and buy that bag of shrimp for nine or ten dollars when you live in the middle of a, of a landlocked country or you live a thousand miles from the closest ocean. Like it, it's that's not normal. It's it's <laughs> normal for us, but like it's not in in the span of history that wasn't a thing until the last century. So it's taken for granted and it will be until it can't be taken at all and it it needs to be at least brought into light and stopped if possible 
And I think the end result is because when you watch things like this, the problem seems insurmountable. It seems like this mountain that can't be fixed. That is, it's true in some cases and not true in others. Our job is to improve little by little each day. I still eat meat. I still at times eat too much of it. But each time I do, I think about it and I eat less and I cook less and I use, you know, less of the things that are going to hurt the environment. More veggies, uh, you know, more of my potatoes that I can grow. I'm, I'm trying to eat more locally. I, I get food from known sources as often as possible, and it's becoming my basement and my yard and my city. The, the goal is to continue to shrink your carbon footprint by shrinking your food profile. And I don't mean eat less items. I mean, just get local items, eat regionally. These are all important things. I mean, in Michigan, we can have fish. We're surrounded by the Great Lakes. It's just a different fish. Yeah. And what really what you're you're saying, I mean, I guess I'm going to try to reword it, is not to eat less, but it's to consume less energy. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that, that you're growing in your house has got lots of embodied energy. The embodied energy I call Michael Nazarian. It's in you. You're the one that t- you, you grow it, you incubate it, you do all the stuff you have to do or germinate. Sorry, I know it's not an egg. But my my lights are there, electricity. There's there's energy in that food. Yeah, but you're not eating a tomato that was grown in Mexico and then was trucked all the way across the country to turn red in a box and have and serve no purpose other than the fact that you get the illusion of tomato, but you're eating a red meat sponge because there's no... And I say meat because it's, they, they're thick and they're nasty and they don't have any flavor. It's not it's not like I don't want people to enjoy good food. I just think that we need to we need to do exactly what you said. We need to eat a little less, read a little more, understand where our food comes and appreciate the things we have in this life. Appreciate them enough to where we protect them until we don't have them to protect. And you respect if you're if you're having a steak or you're having fish or whatever you're having, you respect it that you're not just give me the 20 ounce steak, make jokes about it. You know, we are, we are part of this environment. The dietary changes happen. People make the choices they make, but we don't, we have to be more respectful in what we do. My goal is different than your goal or someone else's goal. There's people out there that are vegan and handle it just fine. I'm trying to break a lifetime of programming and it's getting slightly better each day. I'm just going to eat a lot more vegetables, a lot more fruits, and then a little bit of these other things. And maybe over time, I'll just quit eating them. But it, we have to be respectful and we have to understand where it came from. And we have to really focus on being regional. Yeah. Well, yeah, local local is definitely the best thing you can really do in this category. And we, we've talked about this a lot, though. And this goes a lot further than just today's conversation. In all facets of life, I think eating locally sourced food is the way to go. I, I have a big disdain for the commercial agriculture and pretty much any commercially ran food business. I'm, I'm not a big fan of anything that's... Uh, process to that degree it's just not good for you and it's it's disgusting when you see how a lot of it's made and then when you realize the little things like there's actual certain specifications for percentages of like heavy metals and um of feces and, <laughs> and bugs that, that are allowed in these commercially processed foods <laughs> that because because technically they can't guarantee that they didn't get in there i'm not saying there is but like those those guarantees can't be made so they actually have to have all these these disclaimers and that's messed up like the, literally that like you could be eating coffee beans that were roasted and ground up with roaches like literally it's possible peanut it's, butter has fly wings mm-hmm. and and uh, uh rat hairs there's a specific count of how much rat hair you can have per ounce 
who had that job at the Jiffy department? Like, we got to figure <laughs> out. That's. And then how do you marketably sell that to people other than the fact you really just don't tell them because that's gross. <laughs> but fly uh, pieces of insect is it's in the book. I, I put that in the oh. book. There's actually a certain amount of pieces of insect per ounce of a lot of different things. That's there's with, if you read the food rules, you die <laughs> of hunger. With ten more grams of protein, just don't ask where it comes from. <laughs> so, anyways, we're I'm gonna have to close this episode. Uh, it is a it's a show of anger because we're all just kind of learning some of this stuff. So remember when it comes to the food, the focus is eat better food, local food, but use less plastics where you can. And if you can't use less plastics, brick your plastics, get it so that it's hard to blow off the top of a landfill, get it so that it's hard to end up in the ocean. If you take a few actions, it helps. And that's what realistic sustainability is all about. Little actions over millions of people not that millions of people are listening to us but we have positive footprints and if you do it your kids will see you doing it your friends will see you doing it your family will see you do it and those actions just quote unquote bioaccumulate through your friend group through your community and hopefully together we can all improve the actions enough to at least put a dent in what we're seeing today remember one person can't do everything but one person can do something one person can do something big. And if a million people do something big, then that makes a big change. And that's all we have for you this week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Maybe you got fired up about as much as Nick did. I think he got emotional in this episode. That's the first time I think I've ever seen you true blue fired up. Uh, I'm holding it in. <laughs> so thank you for listening. If you get an opportunity and you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those are helping us out quite a bit. We appreciate your support. I'm Mike. And I'm Nick. And we'll see you next week. Feeling overwhelmed by climate change? Looking for sustainable and ethical brands to support? That ethic is perfect for you. Ethic is a simple browser extension that helps you find sustainable and ethical brands online. Learn more at ethic.org, E-T-H-Y-K.org.